Good evening. Thank you very much for coming. My name is Matteo Carizzi. I welcome you to the LSE Behavioral Economics uh, Seminars. Um, this event is uh, supported by LSEF and Social Care and is part of initiatives by the London Area Behavioral Experimental Group and the London Behavioral Economics Network. Uh, the event will consist of a presentation of about 40 minutes, followed by some time for questions, and will finish at uh, 6.15. Uh, the event will be recorded and possibly uh, made available as a podcast. And uh, the hashtag for Twitter users is LSEBE. It is our uh, greatest pleasure to have the opportunity to kick off the, uh, this academic year uh, series in, uh, uh, in behavioral economic seminars with a talk by Professor George Lowenstein. Professor George Lowenstein is a, is a pioneer and a, a world-leading contributor to, to the field of behavioral economics. He is a professor of economics and psychology at Carnegie Mellon and has held appointment at Berlin, Assessor Foundation, Chicago, and Princeton. Today he will talk about behavioral economics and diet, and we warmly welcome him to meet the LSE and the London behavioral economics community. Thank you very much. I think it's oh, so wonderful that you guys have seminars in the evening so that when you break, you can go to the pub. <laughs> it's a very nice cultural difference. In the States, we tend to have seminars at noon, and they're called brown bag lunches because everybody is eating lunch while they're listening to this seminar, so they don't waste any time at all. Okay. So I'm going to talk about behavioral economics and diet, and my specific focus is going to be on food labeling, but it's going to take me a little while to get there. Uh, this is with research with Julie Downs, um, a colleague at Carnegie Mellon, Eric Van Epps, who's a graduate student, and a bunch of other people who I will acknowledge as I go along. Okay, so a lot of the issues, most pressing issues for public policy involve human behavior. In the U.S., we have a lot of problems. We have a, a credit card debt um, problem. The average family spends about $1,000 servicing their credit card debt every year. We have um, a low rate of personal savings. And we have a very high rate of incarceration. It's higher than... Russia, Rwanda, a lot of countries that we might not ideally want to be comparing ourselves to. And then there's the problem of healthcare spending. And the US, as you know, spends a whole lot more on healthcare than other countries. Here's a graph that shows the GDP of different countries and how much they spend on healthcare. And you can see that um, most countries, oh, I guess I gave this talk last time in Italy. That's, I, I should have put the UK up there. <laughs> just, just noticing that. But in, in any case, um, the UK is somewhere on this line because all of the countries are. Countries tend to spend roughly in proportion to how rich they are on health care, except for one country, of course, and that's the United States. There are a lot of causes of high medical costs and probably bad health behaviors is not the number one. I would say in the United States, the worst problem is our fee-for-service 
arrangement where we pay doctors for every test service and so on that, that, that they provide, so they have an incentive to provide a lot of them. But certainly poor health behaviors is one cause of high medical costs. It's been estimated that lifestyle diseases caused by things like tobacco use, alcohol, and most importantly for this talk, obesity, account for about a third of all premature deaths in the United States. And just so I'm not too UK, I'm not too US-centric, um, as you know, the UK has a problem as, as well with obesity. It's not as bad as the US, but it's, you're getting there. You're, you've been following us. And that's, and also, as I'm sure you know, um, obesity is a major contributor to a lot of different health conditions and to medical costs in general. Okay, what's the proper role of behavioral economics in all of this? What's the proper role of behavioral economics in public policy? Well, um, my thinking has recently undergone a pretty radical shift, and I'm going to tell you what the shift is. But it's actually, um, it's interesting that Professor um, Galizzi introduced me because I was actually um, reading a paper of his that um, led to my change in perspective. So I've been giving a talk on behavioral economics and public policy, or talks on behavioral economics and public policy for several years now. And my standard line is, standard economics assumes people behave optimally, so it assumes that there's no need for intervention except for the problems of externalities, that is, costs that people impose on other people but don't internalize, market failures, and information asymmetries. These are exactly the reasons that John Stuart Mill identified in his book um, On Liberty as the, the reasons for the possible justifications for government intervention. So in my old line um, that ended a couple of weeks ago, I would have then said, um, behavioral economics introduces another category of problem, and that is what my colleagues and I, in 1993, we coined the term internalities. Internalities are problems that people, costs people impose on themselves, and they don't internalize. And so, for example, if you smoke, you are imposing a cost on your future self, and you might not be internalizing that. And so my old line was that these internalities, in the same way that we don't assume that children behave optimally, and so uh, most parents intervene in the, in the diets of their children. We don't, like, I don't allow my daughter to eat candy exactly whenever she wants. And in the same way, once you acknowledge the fact that adults might not be perfectly rational, it opens the door for similarly kinds of paternalistic interventions with adults as we have no problem doing with children. And a bunch of us... Uh, Thaler and Sunstein, Colin Kammerer and my colleagues and I, we introduced in 2003 um, these concepts of asymmetric or libertarian paternalism, which is basically interventions designed to help irrational types, that is, people who are subject to internalities without hurting or restricting the freedom of the rational types. All right. My new perspective is somewhat different. 
I actually think that most of the problems that behavioral economics and public policy deals with are actually due to the traditional causes that were identified by economists and that discussed by John Stuart Mill. For example, obesity, um, obesity is what I'm going to be discussing today. Obesity, in my view, is actually largely due to externalities and specifically the failure of the food industry to internalize the health consequences of food. It's not due to internalities. We didn't um, all of a sudden, in the U.S., for decades and decades, we were a thin nation. And then all of a sudden, in the 1970s, in the mid-1970s, we started getting fat as a nation. Well, we didn't suddenly become subject to internalities. That's not what happened. What happened is, well, I'm going to t- um, the price of foods has changed. They, and specifically, the general price of food has dropped, and the relative and absolute price of healthy foods like fruits and vegetables has um, gone up. An example price of a two-liter bottle of Coke fell 35% between 1990 and 2007. At the, during the same, or roughly the same interval, the real price of fruits and vegetables rose by 17%. And low-income low families, of, of course, are especially subject to these vulnerable, to these price changes. I was in a horrible hotel for a work thing. It's, this is the Gaylord Palms in Orlando, Florida, which is one of my two least favorite places on earth. And there is a Haagen-Dazs. I was thinking about going into this Haagen-Dazs shop, which is un- under this little awning where the, where the, which the arrow points to. And then I, as I was about to go in, I noticed a couple coming out. Um, and each member of the couple had a huge ice cream sundae. And I thought, this, these these people in this couple, they should not be eating these ice cream sundaes. And, but then I, th- I kind of got a little curious, like, why were they eating the ice cream sundaes? And I went in, and I saw the menu board, and I took a picture of it because I thought it was really interesting. And here's the, a small copper cone is $4.29, a large is $6.29, and the large sundae is $6.99. Now, let me ask you a question. Suppose you have a choice between a small, a small ice cream cone for $4.29 or a large sundae for $5.99. Which are you going to choose? I think to ask the question is to answer it. And who's to blame? Are you? Well, um, you, maybe you're to blame because you didn't take into account the fact that the large Sunday is going to have negative consequences for you. Maybe haagen is to blame because it didn't, take in, it didn't put the, price, the health consequences of eating that thing into the price of it. Maybe you're both to blame. And, but also maybe neither of you is to blame because haagen is just pricing the Sunday based on the cost of the raw ingredients and based on competition. My answer, I think I would answer both and neither, even though that I, I realize that seems somewhat contradictory. Going back to this new, new perspective of a few um, weeks ago, I think the same is actually true of a lot of other problems which behavioral economics has been applied to. For example, climate change is not due to misbehavior on the part of individuals. I mean, it is at one level, but it's really due to a free rider problem. 
none of us faces the consequences of the carbon emissions that we personally are responsible for. Low savings, well, again, the savings rate dropped. A lot of stuff happened right around when Ronald Reagan was um, elected. I'm not sure why that is, but the, one of the things that happened was the savings rate started dropping in the United States, and it has been dropping ever since. Why is that? Did we, all, did we Americans all of a sudden become short-sighted? Very unlikely. I think um, one thing that happened is a decline of middle-class incomes and also disappearance of pensions, what about um, tax fraud? Well, tax fraud is mainly due to self-interest and so on. I think a whole lot of the problems that behavioral economics has been applied to actually have kind of conventional economic approaches. And in fact, attributing social problems to human frailty can have negative consequences. For example, we can end up blaming the victim unfairly, and we can also fail to address the true causes. So as I said, these problems didn't arise because we suddenly became impatient. And sometimes if we attribute these problems to human frailty or to impatience, we're going to fail to address the true causes. There's a wonderful paper by Kelly Brownell et al. Et, et al. Um, titled Personal Responsibility and Obesity, which makes it sound like he's going to be holding individuals responsible for their own obesity, but it's actually quite the opposite. He talks exactly about the problem of um, blaming the victim and failing to address true causes. Now, um, Muta Kent, who's the CEO of the Coca-Cola Corporation, he has a slightly different perspective than Kelly Brownell. In an op-ed he wrote in the Wall Street Journal, um, he wrote, among other things, Americans need to be more active and take greater responsibility for their diets. So there are competing, there are competing perspectives on this. No, no laughter. Maybe, he, maybe he's like a major alum of... Um, <laughs> okay. Whatever the... Um, so you're all wondering, like, um, where, does, where does behavioral economics come in? And um, I, do, I do believe that there's an important and critical role for behavioral economics in public policy, even if individual-level problems aren't responsible for most of the problems that behavioral economics deals with. Standard economics has a limited um, toolbox of um, public approaches to public policy. It includes things like giving people information, taxes and subsidies, and things that change generally things that change prices. Behavioral um, economic insights introduce a huge new range of tools. For example, I'm sure most of you have heard of the use of defaults and other types of nudges to change behavior. Innovative ways of providing information, for example, playing on identifiability, social norms, and so on. And also, this is an area that I've done a lot of research on, new incentive mechanisms like deposit contracts, regret lotteries, and um, so on. And an important implication of behavioral economics is a dollar does not equal a dollar does not equal a dollar. If you're going to give people incentives, there are very often ways of implementing incentives, so you might as well just burn the money, and other ways of making incentives very, very effective. And behavioral economics provides some important insights into how to make incentives more effective. Another kind of tenet of behavioral economics and public policy is a belief in the importance of field, field tests. And moreover, it's really important to start small scale because 
something a lot of economists when I when I first studied economics it seemed like the message was always whatever you do it's not going to turn out the way you expect there's always perverse unintended consequences and I think and I think traditional economics is on target with and with that point things don't turn out the way we expect so it's really important to implement things at a small scale first let me say another thing another belief I have. It, it's generally, if you are doing, some of you are probably doing behavioral field studies and behavioral economics and public policy. My own view is it's generally a good thing to start out with a kind of kitchen sink approach. Try something that you, throw everything you have at the problem. Try something that you think is likely to work. If, if the kitchen sink doesn't work, then you might as well give up. If the kitchen sink does work, then you can start to peel back piece, bits of it and see what are the critical components. Okay, obesity, which as, I, as you know I'm going to focus on, is an especially difficult problem. It's, um, it's not all or nothing is impossible. With cigarette smoking, somebody can stop smoking altogether, but you can't stop eating. There's, um, in many, for many types of um, behaviors, you'd like to incentivize process. Um, you'd like to, um, like, let's say, reading. You could, you could pay, pay kids for reading books, and then you could give them quizzes to make sure that they understood them. But it's very difficult to incentivize process when it comes to diet and exercise, because it's really difficult to see what people are eating. It's also difficult to see how much exercise people are getting. You can give them a pedometer, but what if their thing is bicycling or swimming? And so it's really difficult to, to incentivize process. It's also the case that natural homeostatic processes oppose most interventions. And finally, so societal social factors are at play. Um, generally, when behaviors change, the norms surrounding those behaviors tend to change, and that makes it very difficult. It creates a kind of a ratchet effect where it's very difficult to go back to the old reality. This is a response to a very weird double negative question asked by the company NPD. People who are not overweight look a lot more attractive. Um, I think the, if you want to understand it, you think of it as people who are overweight are unattractive. And basically, um, in 1955, 85%, 85%, 55% of people believe that. But in 2009, only 23% of people endorsed that. So there's, there's a changing view on obesity or weight and attractiveness. And you could argue that's a good thing, but certainly one of the forces that was supporting thinness is, seems to be disappearing. If you look at dieting for men and women, more women diet than men, but both, there's a downward trend for both groups. I've been doing a lot of work on obesity, other than calorie labeling, which is what I'm going to be telling you about, We've been doing a lot of work where we are supercharging incentive. We're, we're implementing incentive programs to get people to lose weight. A big finding from that research is we have been very successful in getting people to lose weight. Unfortunately, as soon as our interventions stop, not only do people stop losing weight, but they typically gain back all the weight that we lost. So in one of these interventions, we got people to lose weight for eight months, hoping that we would develop a, they would develop a habit, and they didn't. And when the eight months ended, after a few months, they gained back almost all of their weight. We've also been doing 
a big move for my um, for me and my group is we've been doing a lot of um, group based incentives. You know the. Um, the TV show, The Biggest Loser, we've kind of been doing things based a little bit based on that. That's been more successful, and for some reason, we're getting more habit formation with these social-based incentives. And we're also, exactly because in these incentive programs, people tend to gain back the weight that they lost, we've become very interested in the role of habit formation, and we've been doing a bunch of research on that. We've also been doing some work on nudges. I'm going to tell you a little bit about um, nudges. And finally, we've been doing some work on price discounts and information. Um, here's one study that I'm not going to tell you about, but I, I'm kind of proud of it, so I thought I'd show you just a little bit of it. And that is one where we showed people how long it would... We're trying to get people to switch from sugared beverages to unsugared beverages, and we're showing them how long they'd have to go on a treadmill this is at a, a company cafeteria, how long they'd have to um, work on a treadmill to burn off a single, sugar, uh, a single bottle of soda. Unfortunately, this study did not work. It had no, um, this intervention had no impact. <laughs> we've also been doing a lot of, um, with a different set of colleagues, we've been doing a lot of work on disclosure of information. And specifically, we've been doing research on disclosing conflicts of interest. And again, most of, that re most of that research shows perverse effects. When you disclose that, a, that an advisor has a, a conflict of interest, the advisor tends to give more biased advice as a result of the disclosure. And moreover, the, bizarrely enough, the person receiving the advice feels more pressure to follow the advice. And there's one, the last study we did is the only study that kind of give grounds for hope and that is when we disclose conflicts of interest and the advisor has the, op the choice of whether to be subject to a conflict or not, then the advisors avoid conflicts of interest when we disclose them. So, and I'm going to come back to that theme at the very end. Okay, so my focus today is on um, a kind of combination of obesity and information disclosure. And specifically, I'm going to be talking about a lot of research we've done looking at calorie labeling. Calorie labeling is really attractive to everyone. It's attractive to traditional economists because give it, traditional economists believe that one reason that people make bad decisions is because they don't have good information. So giving them good information has to be a good thing. Behavioral economists like calorie labeling too. It's believed to have beneficial effects. And it's usually viewed as cheap, like uh, just posting calorie information is inexpensive. Now, the question marks are because I have my doubts about exactly how cheap it is. Let's say you go to McDonald's and you really want a Big Mac, and now you notice, and you get a Big Mac, and now you notice that the Big Mac has a lot of calories. Well, you're not going to enjoy your Big Mac quite as much as, if, um, as you would if there, were no, if there was no calorie labels. And that's a real effect. I mean, it, it is important for people to enjoy their consumption, after all. A big reason for eating is to enjoy it. And so that might not be, it might be cheap, but it might not be as cheap as we believe that it is. The most significant nutrition labeling to date in the United States was the Nutrition Labeling Education Act, which gave us these nutrition labels on fast food labels, on, on, on sorry, on packaged foods. And 
I'm going to just skip over this part, but let me just summarize the literature to say that almost all of the research that's been done on the NLEA, including research that I've done, shows that it had very little impact on people's diets and it didn't change people's attitudes either. Fast forward to the present. Um, we now have um, in, in New York, starting in New York City, it was supposed to be implemented in 2007. It, the fast food industry fought it. It was eventually implemented in 2008. I think if the fast food industry knew what little impact it has, they wouldn't have bothered to fight it. But anyway, it was implemented in New York City eventually in 2008. And the, the justification for implementing it was a study that was conducted at Subway. So I, don't, I haven't noticed any Subway sandwich shops here, but... It, okay, so you know there's this glass case, and there's all the like um, food items, the like processed meats and other disgusting things behind the glass. And they put um, Subway posted calorie information behind um, on the front of that glass, and then somebody did a study where they asked people, "Did you notice the calorie information at the, on the front of the glass?" And they found that the people who noticed the calorie information consumed 50 fewer calories. Now, I bet a lot of you here are social scientists, and so you know that that's, um, you cannot conclude from that that calorie labeling reduces calorie consumption by 50 calories. Probably the most likely interpretation is that people who wanted to lose weight noticed the information, and if you want to lose weight, you eat fewer calories. Anyway, you can't, between those two possible explanations, you can't really distinguish. But based on that flawed study, the uh, New York City implemented calorie labeling, and now it's actually been implemented nationally. It's, it's part of what is colloquial, no, colloquially known as Obamacare, the um, Affordable Care Act, national calorie posting at, at um, chain restaurants. But confirming suspicions of the conclusions from the original study, most of the subsequent research has found that calorie posting has little, if any, impact. This is a study by Albol, published in Health Affairs, and he looked at um, New York City, where they implemented the calorie labeling, and Newark, where they did not, both before labeling and after labeling, 825 versus 846 and near Newark where they didn't implement the calorie labeling. And you can see no evidence that calorie labeling affected the amount of calories eating in these fast food restaurants that Elbow et al. looked at. The question that we, that my colleagues and I asked whether is, well, maybe they just haven't done it right. So nutrition labeling as, as it's been implemented hasn't been successful, but are there ways of implementing nutrition labeling in a more innovative fashion. So the first thing we did was involve calorie targets. A lot of diet experts have argued that posting calorie information hasn't affected people's behavior because people don't know how to use the information. And they have advocated giving people recommended calorie intake guidelines to help them to interpret the labels. And in fact, regulators in New York City launched an educational campaign publicizing daily calorie recommendations. What we did was we ran an experiment in New York City before and after calorie labeling where we gave some people, tar this was all done at lunchtime, and we gave people targets. So we stood outside of McDonald's in New York City, 
they were, uh, we started in summer of 2007 thinking that the calorie labeling was going to be implemented, but as I said, the fast food industry managed to put it off until 2008. We went back in early summer 2008, and we collected data both um, before calorie posting and after calorie posting. We asked customers to keep their receipt, and when they came out of the restaurant, we would pay them to give us their receipt and also to complete a short survey. When they were entering, now here's where the experiment came into play. When they were entering McDonald's, we randomly assigned them to get one of three types of information. Either nothing, no reference calorie information, a day reference, how many calories um, should a person of your gender eat per day, and a meal reference, how many calories should they eat per meal. Well, actually, it was a lunch reference because they were eating lunch. So our idea was... After calorie posting, they're going to walk in and they're going to see the calorie information, and we're telling them, this is how many calories you should eat at lunch. So we thought, well, maybe the combination of a target and the information would help them to reduce their calorie intake. Now, here are the results. This doesn't have to do with our experiment. This is simply looking at um, what happened in terms of calorie intake. This is 2007 before the legislation, 2008 after the legislation, and, oh, no, before the legislation and 2008 after the legislation. And very much like elbow, we did not observe any bene beneficial effect of calorie labeling on <coughs> calorie consumption. Moreover, we observed a weird effect where when we looked at normal or underweight people, it had absolutely no impact. But when we looked at overweight or obese people, their calorie consumption went up after labeling. And there was a, a cartoon published in the Washington Post. Here it is. And I wonder if this cartoon might help to explain our findings. So what it shows is, here's a Big Mac, $3.79. Here's how many calories in the Big Mac. And here's how many calories you get per dollar. So... Um, <laughs> so I, I, I wonder whether, especially... <laughs> I wonder whether especially low-income people may be reading the menu very differently from the way that the policymakers intended. Well, what about, our, what about our experiment? We implemented the meal in the day, um, the target information, both before the legislation was introduced. You can see it had no effect after the legislation was introduced. Now, there is like a little bit of a suggestion here. It's, it's not statistically significant. Who knows? Maybe if we had a bigger N, it's too late, but if maybe if we had a bigger N, we'd find a significant effect. But we did not observe a significant effect of the reference information. And in another study that we did where we attempted to make calorie information more useful, and this is um, with Julie Downs and Jessica um, Wisdom, and we were just asked to buy a journal to play to put this paper in the journal, so um, I, th I think it's about to be published. What we do is, um, this is our research truck at Carnegie Mellon, and we drive it around to different places, and people get on and do our studies um, for us. I highly recommend it, uh, assuming you don't have one yet. And what we do, in a lot of these studies, what we do is we get people on the truck, we ask them to complete a survey, and they think that the point of the experiment is the survey, but then we, in, in exchange for completing the study, we give them a reward, a snack. And actually, what we're really interested in is their choice of snack. 
In this study, we give them the choice of these snacks, and these are the calories behind the snacks. We chose them to have very different levels of calories, and we either gave them or did not give them cal the numeric calorie information. So some people got this and some people didn't. And we also arranged the order of the snacks. For some, it was increasing. That is, the calories went from low, low at the top to high at the bottom. For some, it was just random. And for some, it was declining. And this looks to be the increasing condition here. Okay, we had two hypotheses. The first was that without calorie information, convenience would drive choice. And so we thought that if we listed the lowest calorie choices at the top, they'd be more likely to choose low calorie choices. But with calorie information, we thought that it would be really helpful for them to make, in terms of making sense of the calorie information, if we either listed it in a decreasing way or an increasing way, because then they can look at it and immediately say, oh, this is the lowest calorie, this is the highest, or this is the lowest, this is the highest. So our prediction was that without calorie information, the lowest to highest condition would have the, we'd see the people consuming the lowest calorie snacks, but with calorie information, we would find that either increasing or decreasing would be the best. Now, I probably wouldn't be showing you this if it didn't turn out the way we hoped. This is, um, this is how many calories. This, they, they're, eat, they're, con they're consuming one snack. In the, this is in the ascending condition, the average snack calories. In the random condition, and th this is all with no calorie information, and in the descending condition. So this is kind of like a classic nudge. If you've read the book Nudge, it opens, I think, with an example of um, a manager arranging the food at a cafeteria from the low, you know, putting the low-calorie food, the healthy food, first, so, so diners encounter it first. We basically did that. People saw the low-calorie snacks first. What happened when we introduced calorie information? Well, we saw a very different um, pattern. With calorie information, the lowest calorie um, snack calorie choices were in the ascending condition and the descending condition. This isn't exactly the pattern we expected. I thought it would be, I thought the lowest would be the ascending because both the nudge and the information are coming, are easy to make sense of. For some reason, calorie information and descending was the lowest. In another study with the same authors, um, actually, I think it's going to go into the same paper, and the same method, we examined a much wider range of ways to convey calorie information, but it was exactly the same set of snacks. This is N equals 610 people who set foot on our research truck, and they were randomly assigned to one of 12 calorie labeling conditions. It was a control condition where they got no information. They were, just shown the, they were just shown the snacks in a random order. There was one where they got calorie information. Here's, here's the calorie information here. There was a calorie information and a daily intake reference. So at the bottom here, it says how many calories you should consume, men and women should consume per day. There was calorie information and daily snack intake reference. So this is kind of weird because probably the best, probably the best thing to do is not consume any snacks. But so I have to admit that we kind of made up this number. But we said that we said the target the target snack calories are 200. Okay, and 
Then we, in another condition, we show people the, percent, sorry, the percentage of daily calories in the snack. So this hostess apple pie, and it, I feel I have mixed feelings about this because it's actually my mother used to pack this hostess. This has been around for a long time. My mother used to pack it in my lunch, my school lunch. But anyway, the hostess apple pie is 24% of your daily calories. And then finally, we had the percent of daily snack calories, so the percentage of 200. So the hostess apple pie is way more calories than 200. We also tested some, oh, then we did the minutes on a treadmill. I already showed you another study where that didn't um, work very successfully. And so the hostess apple pie, you'd have to be on the treadmill for 47 minutes to burn that off. We also did some other um, what we call heuristic cues. We looked at um, nutrition grade. Now in the US, our, all our students get, um, get grades A, B, C, D, and F. And so, we, so everybody understands what, the, what, a, what these letter grades mean. So we did letter grades. We also did the expected body size. <laughs> Someone who eats this snack routinely over time based on nutrition experts' recommendations. <laughs> and finally, we did traffic light um, ratings. Here's what we found. Um, very nicely, the control, they, they consumed the most calories in the control condition. So basically, everything worked to some degree. These are all the numeric things. And the most effective numeric one was the percentage of snack Calorie, daily snack calories. That's the one where the hostess apple pie came out 200 and something percent. The, in general, the heuristic cues were quite successful. The nutrition grade was pretty good. The traffic lights were good. And the expected body size was um, indistinguishable from the traffic light. Now, I don't really think the expected body si size is very practical. Like, I don't see po policymakers implementing <laughs> that one. So we thought that we thought really the most interesting to focus on was not the body size but the traffic lights. Um, when we looked at overweight versus normal weight participants, so everything worked for the normal weight participants, but there wasn't a big difference between the numbers and the heuristic cues. But when we looked at people who were overweight, these interventions were much more successful. So overweight people, on average, consumed calories that had much higher snacks. But when we gave them the heuristic cues, they actually consumed calories with fewer snacks. And this is really nice, because I already showed you research where the overweight people, it was kind of the opposite. They, the overweight people responded in exactly the wrong way. So that was very encouraging. A lot of other field experiments have found beneficial effects of traffic lights. There's a study by Levy et al. which found reduced purchases of red light items and increased purchase of green, green light items, especially beverages in a hospital cafeteria in Boston. And there was um, another study that found a combination of calorie labels and traffic light labels reduced caloric intake of patrons at, sit -down, at a sit-down restaurant compared to no label. So based on this and our earlier, on the, the research I just showed you, we thought that traffic lights were really promising. Um, and of course, in 2006, the UK introduced 
voluntary, uh, which I guess consistent with the cons kind of conservative party ethos, it's voluntary, front of package color-coded color labeling scheme. So we wanted to look more carefully at traffic lights, and here's a study that kind of raises a cautionary note. This is a study we did at McDonald's, where we, as people were going into McDonald's, we handed them a menu, and we asked them to order from our menu, and when they came out, we gave them $5, and they completed a survey, and they, gave, and they well, we knew what they ordered because they ordered on their menu, but they gave us our menu back. And we either had numeric calorie posting, so we either gave them calorie information or not, and we either, and we either gave them traffic lights or not. Here's what we found. When we look at um, total calories ordered, you can see that actually the traffic lights had a perverse effect. They ordered more calories with traffic lights than without traffic lights. The calorie labels, the numbers, didn't seem to have much impact. They ordered more items, and they ordered more calories per item. Now, what's going on? Um, when we look at the data, the data really suggests that a few things are going on. One is that um, people, when they see these green yellow and red lights. Well, green light items, they still have calories, but people take green, very naturally, they take green as a kind of a go signal. So people thought, okay, I can have as many green items as I want. And so hence the larger number of items ordered. But suppose you are, suppose you decide I am going to get a yellow light item and you feel feeling kind of guilty about getting a yellow light item, well, if I'm going to get a yellow light item, I might as well go for the most caloric yellow light item. And so that's the pattern, and the same thing with the red light items. We didn't see a lot of people getting the red light items, but when they did, a lot of them went all the way. <laughs> so here's the last, I think this is the last study I'm going to tell you about. Where, um, this is a study very hot off the press, like we just finished running it. It's the third in three studies we've, we've run in the same kind of venue. This is a corporate, again, this is Eric Van Epps, who is the lead author on this, and Julie Downs, my colleague. This was done in a corporate office building, um, which has an on-site cafeteria, and we created an online um, menu so the workers at this company, it's a health insurer, can order lunches online. And we developed this online ordering system, which put a big crimp on my research budget. It was very expensive to develop. And basically what they do is they get online, they order, and they order an item, and then they can go down to the coffee shop, and the cafeteria delivers the food in, the, in a bag to the coffee shop. And that way they can, um, as I already told you, we Americans like to w work while we're eating. Sometimes we listen to seminars, but sometimes we're sitting at our computer. And so it allowed them to work while they were eating. They could just pick up their lunch and bring it back to their <coughs> office. And so we recruited, for this, this is the third of three studies. We recruited 145 participants. It was a four-week study. We randomly assigned them to a menu condition in which they either got or did not get um, numeric, um, oh, sorry. They either got numeric calorie information or they got traffic light information for, based on calories. And here's the new innovation here. 
we thought, well, maybe one, of the, uh, maybe one of the problems with traffic lights is traffic lights tend to be implemented at the level of the item. So, and people order multiple items, and they don't know how to, how do you aggregate traffic lights? So we thought, okay, in an online environment, we can look at the overall order, and we can add up the calories, and we can give them a traffic light for the whole order. And so here's, the, here's what it looked like. Here's what the web interface looked like in the calorie. This is the traffic light condition and without aggregation. So we explain what the traffic lights mean. And then here's the, um, here's the thing that they can order. And here's the traffic lights. And here's what it looks like with the aggregate. Um, with the aggregate, all we did was we added a traffic light for the whole meal. And this had a very, the aggregation had a really nice effect that um, comparing the left-hand side, these are calorie labels. On, uh, um, I'm trying not to I'm blind Professor Galizzi here with my <laughs> pointer. The calorie um, labels, these are calorie labels, here's the light labels. And in another study we found that they all had a fairly beneficial effect. But the, the really beneficial effect came from the calorie, sorry, from the traffic light labels with aggregation. And we got a, a big interaction effect. And you can't always do this, of course, but it really suggests that traffic light labels can be effective if you can do it on the overall meal that the people are ordering. So some insights on calorie labeling and information provision more generally. First is that a lot of policies that are obvious, like um, traffic lights, traffic lights seem like a no-brainer. It's really simple way, everybody, simple way of delivering calorie information. Everybody understands traffic lights. So you might be tempted, based on that, uh, the obviousness of that, oh, let's implement it at a grand scale. But a lot of obvious policies don't work out exactly the way that we expect them to. A second thing is that sometimes small tweaks, like for example, aggregation in the traffic light case can make a huge difference. And a third point that I haven't really um, focused on very much, but, I, but that it's a big theme of the writing I've been doing, including this paper with Cass Sunstein that's coming out in the Annual Review of Economics on disclosure of information. I would say, most of the time that providing information works, it doesn't work by changing individual consumers' behavior. It tends to work by changing sellers' and producers' behavior. So if calorie labeling is effective, it's going to be effective because it's going to change the menu. It's kind of a telltale heart effect. That's what we call it in this paper. It's going to change the menu offerings of the restaurants, not because it's going to lead the restaurant patrons to, to order different food. The, you might think that this is kind of a gloomy talk about behavioral economics and public policy. In my view, behavioral economics and public policy is very much alive and well, but it's just not mainly about dealing with internalities. I guess there's mic microphones. Yeah. Yeah. Microphone. 
So you've experienced you've experienced this firsthand. Given the fact that your study suggests that salience is a very important factor in the type of information and how it is interpreted and read, have you thought about not using calories, which as you suggest is very difficult for people to translate to reality and also treadmill you know, minutes? Have you, have you thought about, since many people in America are eating, they don't actually do it, they think about it, dieting? Have you thought about translating the meal into pounds per year extra? So, Big Mac, mm -hmm. 25 pounds. I, I, I say this because three, three years ago, I read an article that said that maybe half of the weight increase in Americans mm -hmm. is due to soft drink consumption. Yeah. I mean, soft, soft drink completely. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm drinking nothing. But, um, but, um, but because I realize that's 20 pounds a year, right? Mm -hmm. um, have you guys thought about that? Thank you. Yeah. I, I always find these statistics, like the entire increase in, in weight in the United States is due to soft drinks. While other people find that the entire increase is due to snacks. Other people find its entire increase is due to portion size. And how do you, um, how do you, all of these factors are important. So I don't really know how you attribute it to these different factors. But that's not really what you were asking about. You were asking about whether this alternative approach of showing people like pounds per year would be effective. I haven't seen anybody do it, but it is an, it, it's an example of something that I've thought a lot about in a lot of different contexts. For example, saving. It's an idea, unfortunately I haven't written about it, but I call it extrapolative feedback, where you show people, they, people do small things and you show what are the long-term consequences of behaving the way you are behaving now. And I think, so what you're talking about is a combination of what I would call extrapolative feedback and giving people in, uh, information on weight. And I think it's a very intriguing idea. So if there are policymakers in the audience, including maybe you, somebody should try it. Yes? Well, I'd like to give a message to some policymakers. Um, I was just a little bit depressed that you didn't mention anything about the health benefits of eating more natural foods. Mm -hmm. uh, you said about the 1970s, but the massive increase in processed food. And if you look at athletes, they mm -hmm. pay attention to this. So uh, I know personal responsibility doesn't seem to work, right. but uh, just counting calories or even showing traffic lights actually bears no relationship whatsoever to the health of the food. Right. You, you can eat yeah. 2,000 calories a day by just consuming white sugar. That's true. And in the, in the UK, those, those traffic light things, the voluntary traffic lights, are not on calorie. They're, they are on calories, but they're also on a bunch of other things. I don't know, I don't know if that's an improvement or not. I, I think maybe this, this could be a case of like the proverbial drunk under the lamppost. Like it's just very different. First, there's not a lot of agreement about exactly what's healthy and unhealthy. And taking a particular meal and classifying different parts of it as healthy or unhealthy is difficult. There's no number. We, we have no numeric system. It's just a whole lot more difficult to do research on healthiness. It than can be difficult, but it would be nice to see 
eat a high calorie meal. And I think it would be, and eating, of course, is one of the um, small number of reliable pleasures in life. And it would be, to me, it would be um, tragic if we took eating and we started making people feel even more guilty about every morsel they put in their, um, in their body. Because after all, what's left? Um, there's only one other pleasure in life that's left uh, after we get rid of eating. But, be, but, but beyond that... There's a lot of, in eating behavior, there's a, there's a lot of neurotic eating behavior, you know, anorexia, bulimia, but even people who don't suffer from these clinical conditions often exhibit a lot of what we all, I'm sure, exhibit some bizarre patterns of behavior. And showing people, like, gruesome pictures of the effects of what, what's going to happen if you eat the wrong foods, my guess is it's just going to make us all more neurotic. We're all going to become binge eaters. So I definitely would not advocate anything like what's been happening with smoking in the area of diet. Jack Clinton, Professor of Nutrition Policy, Mondavat Public University. You began your lecture with uh, renewed enthusiasm for traditional economic explanations. And then you showed us a cartoon from the Washington Post, which listed snacks in terms of value for money, calories for dollars. Mm -hmm. Have you ever tried any experiments manipulating prices of healthy and less healthy options so that you made the healthy choice the cheaper choice? Um. Even, even though I'm a big believer that we do need to change relative prices, I have to admit that the one study that I did where we tried that did not work. And it's the study, it was the same study with the treadmill picture that I've showed you very briefly. And in that study, we put a, we get, uh, put a 10% discount on zero-calorie beverages, including bottled water, but also including some beverages that um, you, um, who asked me the question about healthy versus unhealthy foods, would not approve of, like, like um, diet sodas. But we put a 10% discount on zero-calorie beverages. It did not move the needle. That's just one study. I remain convinced that changing relative prices has to be a part of the answer to the problem, and that behavioral economics can potentially provide some insights in how to make those price changes more effective. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, I'm Michael, I'm an LSE alumni and uh, a grad student at the University. Um, you've mentioned a lot about the context, the information and context, and the tests you've done on this. Have you done any... Um, or you and your colleagues on the any tests on uh, the timing or the frequency of information that you get to? Um, well, certainly, we've done some um, research on, on timing, but not exactly timing of information. But I, let me respond to your question first. The, in a different, a, a different line of research that I do is on privacy. And one of the things we look at is the perverse effects of privacy warnings. When you, um, let's say you're trying to ask somebody 
uh, no, sorry, privacy reassurances. You, um, you're trying to ask somebody some personal, personal questions for research purposes, and you reassure them of anonymity and confidentiality. Well, all of a sudden that rings alarm bells, and they, get, and they clam up, and they don't tell you, even though you've given them an assurance. Anyway, in the research on privacy, we, f we find that different interventions that we do have an incredibly short-lived impact on whether people reveal or don't reveal information. And in fact, we can do an intervention and then distract people for 10 seconds, and then the, the impact of the intervention, even if it's quite large, if it's delivered immediately before, ten, like a tiny bit of distraction or even like a 15-second time delay undoes the effect of the intervention. So timing is really key, and it's really, if you want to have an impact, it's really important that people have the information there and then, so it's highly salient to them. We've also been doing some research um, that on the timing of when people order meals. So in the exactly the same um, lunch program, the online lunch study. The first study we ran, we, we had people either ordering food right before lunch or, or ordering food in the morning, presumably at, right after they've had breakfast when they're not hungry. And we, initially, when we first ran it, we got no, it did not have a beneficial effect, contrary to our expectations. But again, we did a, a, a tweak, very similar to the aggregation tweak with the traffic lights, and then it started to have a beneficial effect. But timing is very, very important for a lot of these things. Thank you very much. And thank you, Susan. Thank you very much for coming, and especially thanks to Professor Dawson.